Jesus said a lot of things, and the gospel writers don't always agree on the details. That doesn't make the gospels unreliable any more than it would make your friends and family unreliable if they happen to disagree about exactly what you said or did last week, never mind years ago. That's just what witnesses do. They differ. And so, if I'm trying to get to the truth of what you said or did years ago, I wouldn't talk to just one witness. I'd want to hear from two, or three, or four. And it seems the earliest Christian communities followed a similar logic. Of the most widely respected Gospels then in circulation, they didn't choose just one, or throw all four of them into a blender and make a kind of Gospel smoothie. No, they decided to keep all four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in all their distinctiveness, with all their differences intact. So it's by no means an embarrassment or a problem to find a difference in detail or emphasis between two Gospels. On the contrary, it's the differences that provide for some depth perception, we might say, just as the differences of viewpoint between your right eye and your left eye allow you to see the world not as a flat image, but as a three-dimensional space. The Bible isn't a flat, single-voice monologue. It's a three-dimensional, multi-vocal dialogue, a library, a space we can enter and listen and learn and join the conversation. So, yes, Jesus said a lot of things, and the gospel writers don't always agree. And this makes it all the more striking when they do, when we find a particular teaching repeated, more or less, in multiple gospels. One example of this is Jesus' teaching on divorce. There's a version of it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And on the surface, it seems pretty cut and dry, basically a categorical prohibition of divorce. In the Gospel of Mark, for example, Jesus puts it this way, What God has joined together, let no one separate. And then he adds that anyone who divorces and remarries effectively commits adultery. At first glance, that seems pretty clear. But as it turns out, on closer inspection, Jesus is not categorically prohibiting divorce. And tracking what he's actually up to is a case study in how to read the Bible. And even more, it turns out to be a case study in how Jesus reads the Bible. I'm Matthew Meyer Bolton, and this is Strange New World, a show about understanding the Bible for skeptics, believers, and everybody in between. This is part four of our six-part series on understanding Jesus. And in this episode, we turn to the specific question of what Jesus taught about divorce, and to the larger question of how Jesus reads Scripture. Let's start, well, let's start with marriage. With really any topic, but especially a controversial one, where you begin is critical. It sets the context and the direction of the analysis. And in this case, it's vitally important to begin with this. In Jesus' day, marriage and divorce 
were patriarchal institutions in which women and children were technically considered the property of men. Now you might say, well, of course, it was 2,000 years ago. That's how everybody did it back then. But in ancient Roman society, for example, both husbands and wives could initiate divorce. And there's evidence that at least some Jewish wives could too, but in many circles, Jewish law traditionally granted that power exclusively to husbands. The book of Deuteronomy, chapter 24, is a case in point. The acceptable grounds for divorce, however, were much debated in first century Palestine. Some taught that only adultery could trigger divorce. Jesus himself takes this view in the Gospel of Matthew. While others followed Deuteronomy's broader standard that anything, quote, objectionable about her, unquote, that is objectionable to the husband, is enough to justify divorce. Even merely if, quote, she does not please him, unquote. What's more, in many cases, women and children in those days were highly dependent on marriage for their livelihood and well-being. And this dependence, combined with the husband's exclusive ability to initiate divorce, put those women and children in an acutely vulnerable position. To understand Jesus' teaching on divorce, we have to bear this first-century Near Eastern context in mind. Who is the most vulnerable in this picture? Women and children. So when some experts in the law ask Jesus if divorce is lawful, to test him, Mark says, signaling that the question is posed in an adversarial spirit as a kind of trap, Jesus starts by turning the tables, challenging his questioners to answer their own question. And they say, well, yes, divorce is lawful. And they cite, you guessed it, Deuteronomy 24. That passage conjures up a world of common and capricious divorce, with men simply deciding that she does not please him or finding something objectionable about her, and then ending the marriage. To this patriarchal ethos of divorce on demand, that is, on male demand, Jesus says, no. He reframes Deuteronomy's permission as an accommodation to what he calls human hardness of heart. God's original vision for marriage, Jesus insists, is that two people are inseparably joined and become one flesh, a phrase from Genesis 2. Likewise, privately with his disciples, Jesus equates remarriage with adultery. And by the way, as he does so, he uses strikingly egalitarian terms, referring both to a husband divorcing his wife and to a wife divorcing her husband, in conspicuous contrast to Deuteronomy 24. Okay, so Jesus teaches that both men and women have agency when it comes to divorce, but doesn't he also categorically prohibit divorce? Well, on the one hand, Jesus is clearly critical of divorce in this passage, particularly as divorce is portrayed in Deuteronomy 24. Jesus contrasts that portrait of divorce with the divine ideal of becoming one flesh, the portrait in Genesis 2. But if we read him closely, 
there are at least four reasons to doubt that what he's up to here is a simple, straightforward prohibition. Let's take these reasons one at a time. First, as we've seen all along the way in Mark, Jesus often speaks in surprising hyperbolic terms in order to provoke his listeners. I mean, this is the guy who's just said, just in the previous chapter, if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out. This is not someone to take too literally. Second, it's worth noting that many of the earliest Christian communities didn't end up taking a categorical view of divorce. Matthew, for example, includes an adultery exception, and Paul also permits divorce in certain circumstances. And third, it's striking that Jesus draws this contrast between Deuteronomy and Genesis without declaring Deuteronomy's permission null and void. He doesn't say, Moses was mistaken, nor does he say, the divorce described in Deuteronomy is no longer valid. Rather, he says, what Moses teaches about divorce is well and good, but don't forget, it's an accommodation to human struggle, not an expression of the divine ideal. On the contrary, God's ideal vision for marriage is that it entails becoming one flesh, two people who care for each other to such an intimate, life-giving degree that they become one. Don't take that vision lightly. Strive toward it as best you can and reserve divorce as a last resort. And to men in particular who might be tempted to take advantage of Moses' words, she does not please him or something objectionable about her, well, think again. God calls you not to be selfish, entitled, and cavalier, but rather to be humble, to serve your spouse, and to serve your children. Jesus lets Deuteronomy 24 stand, but reframes it as subordinate to Genesis 2. As it turns out then, Jesus' view isn't a categorical prohibition of divorce, but rather a prohibition of cavalier, contemptuous forms of divorce, and above all, forms of divorce that put women and children at risk. Deuteronomy's permission remains in effect, though it's properly understood, Jesus contends, in light of the divine ideal. Two married people becoming bone of each other's bone and flesh of each other's flesh, caring for each other as though they are caring for themselves. It's how many people picture an ideal partnership, and it's what many couples aspire to, even when it doesn't come to pass. What's more, lifting up this ideal is perfectly consistent with the notion that a marriage sadly falling far short of it, a marriage that creates more harm than good, is indeed rightly ended. But even so, Jesus wants to ensure that our default position is to strive for the one flesh ideal, with divorce as a last resort, to be used not when, say, she does not please him, but rather when the partnership becomes injurious to one or both partners. 
Why does Jesus insist upon striving for the one-flesh ideal? Marriage isn't for everyone, but for many people, a lifelong intimate partnership can be a key source of growth and happiness. And particularly in those days, marriages could create sanctuaries of livelihood and well-being for women and children. And conversely, divorces could put women and children out into harm's way. Here lies the deep kinship between Jesus' teaching on divorce and his practice of welcoming children, which is what he does in Mark's gospel immediately after his teaching on divorce. He welcomes children to his side. Jesus is always especially concerned with protecting and advocating for the most vulnerable, and not only because they're exposed to harm. Children, he says, can be distinctively open-minded, open-hearted, and therefore receptive to God's blessings in exemplary ways. The rest of us should follow their lead. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, Jesus declares, will never enter it. Jesus approaches scripture as a kind of three-dimensional space for reflection, with multiple voices that need to be heard and coordinated with sensitivity and care. Not a grab bag of verses that prove this or that opinion or position. His questioners point to Deuteronomy 24 and say, here you go, it's in Deuteronomy, that settles it. But Jesus says, no, 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 you can't just look at Deuteronomy. You also have to listen more widely, not just Deuteronomy 24, but also Genesis 2. And once we've listened widely, Jesus continues, the next step is to apply a sense of priority and proportion. Which passages are more central, more important, more illuminating for understanding other passages? The larger lamps should light the way and help us see the smaller lamps not the other way around. In this instance, Genesis 2 is the larger lamp, the shining ideal that helps put Deuteronomy 24 in the proper setting and perspective. And how do we know which lamps are larger? By applying key principles as we go. Principles such as symbiotic love, the kind of love portrayed in Genesis 2, where two people each care for the other as if caring for themselves, as if they are one. And principles such as protecting the most vulnerable, as Jesus does here with respect to women and children. Finally, Jesus approaches the law not merely as a judicial resource, as if all the law does is tell us what's permitted and what's prohibited, what's right and what's wrong. No, Jesus understands the law in a deeper, broader way, as an educational resource for living, a tool to help guide us, shepherd us toward being the people God created us to be. In this instance, Genesis 2 lays out the ideal vision toward which lifelong partners are to strive. Deuteronomy 24 still stands, though as we've seen, Jesus gives it an egalitarian upgrade. But Jesus frames the Deuteronomy passage not as a mere legal permission, but rather as an accommodation to human struggle. The bottom line? Divorce is still permitted, but positioned squarely as a last resort. 
and the law itself is positioned not as a collection of do's and don'ts, permissions and prohibitions, but rather as a pathway for human life, complete with ideal visions to strive toward and pragmatic, compassionate accommodations for when we fall short of those ideals. This is what the law, the Torah, is for as Jesus understands it. It's what scripture is for. Today we'd say, it's what the Bible is for. Listening widely to the library's many voices, applying a sense of priority and proportion, thinking through key principles like symbiotic love and protecting the most vulnerable, and conceiving the Bible in the first place not as a grab bag of proof texts or a collection of permissions and prohibitions, but rather as a pathway for life, full of challenging ideals and compassionate accommodations as we grow. A three-dimensional space, a kind of gymnasium, a place where we can learn and relearn how to love. Strange New World is a SALT project production, written and produced by me, Matthew Meyer Bolton, with help from Elizabeth Meyer Bolton and Gretchen Summers. Music is by Pablo J. Garman and Blue Dot Sessions. If you like what you hear, spread the word and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help people find us. And drop us a line at community at saltproject.org. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. <laughs>